Welcome to Terrible, a Canadian true crime podcast. I'm Marie. And I'm Renee. We're two friends that discuss true crime stories in hopes to prepare ourselves for life's most terrible things. Quick disclaimer, the following podcast will include graphic and explicit content. Our goal is to respect victims and their families. We do not want to sensationalize crimes or glorify criminals. We are not experts. We want to tell these stories in order to learn from them and make sure victims and their families are not forgotten. So this week we are covering the case of Bruce MacArthur. He was the gay village killer, was also known as the gay village killer in Toronto. And we are covering this case with the help of two episodes from the Netflix show Catching a Killer. That type of documentary, the way they filmed it, the way they explain everything and who they had to interview, I loved it. Yeah, I, I was going to rave about yeah. it too. It's just so, I, I think I watched it when it first came out, but maybe mm-hmm. I was doing that thing where I was half listening or, and obviously for, for this time I had to fully yeah. listen. It's so well made. The detectives mm-hmm. interviewed are like so wonderful. And you yeah, get to love just, them. Like you love hmm. the detectives. Yeah. No, yeah. I really and liked it. The storyline is so, it just makes so much sense. It's like very soothing because sometimes mm-hmm. you know, it's true crime and it's, it jumps from this to this to yeah. that and it's kind of confusing. It's just like one straight mm-hmm. nice storyline. You really feel like you're almost like part of the case. Yeah. All right. So let's get started. So uh, yeah, like I said, this is two episodes and when the first episode starts, we meet detective harris who i would just like to say is a badass woman oh yeah a hundred percent so she's uh working on a missing persons case for a man named skanda nevaratman there's a lot of really complicated names in this case so give me some grace here people but (laughs) yes so she's working on this missing persons case he's a 40 year old man who went missing from the gay village in toronto and while she's working on this case she gets a call and the caller on the other end is another detective He tells her that he has information about Skanda's missing persons case. He says that he believes that Skanda has been kidnapped, murdered, and eaten by a cannibal. Which I could not believe when I heard that. I don't think I've ever heard of something like that happening in real life or being a possibility in real life. For sure. This episode definitely opens your eyes to kind of the underground world of all that is dark when it comes to scary like yeah. very scary it's funny because detective harris basically says the same thing she, she's like i i didn't believe it like i yeah. didn't really i wasn't like this is a great lead yeah <laughs> this makes sense like, yeah yeah she's kind of like um okay weird but as she you know starts to investigate further she thinks that maybe there's something to this um maybe there is a cannibal working you know around toronto's gay village and targeting toronto's lgbtq community so as she looks into it further she finds these cannibal websites so this was you know kind of the tip from the the detective who had called her who i think was from sweden but i can't exactly remember but he wasn't a canadian detective and he directed her towards this website that he was on and this is where he had gotten that information it's a cannibal website and what (laughs) why why how many people are on this website is what i want to know and why i feel like a lot of people it's just like can everyone access this like is this what the dark web is like someone explained to me what the dark web is because i thought the dark web was like you had to like go through like hoops to Mm. access it and whatever but this feels like she was just like google like cannibal website i think it was some sort of dark web black web web, yeah because (laughs) The I think the detect uh, the person who called her to give that info I think was undercover, 
And that's how he got into yeah. the website or something like that. So I think there are some sort of hoops to jump through, but yeah. where do you start with something like that? So she uh, tracks down a username, which is the username she had been given by the detective. And this username is chefmate50. And she's like, okay, and I might have something here. So she meets with homicide detectives to kind of, you know, go over what she has and her missing persons case and try and figure out if there's any link anywhere to, you know, finding something concrete. She says in the episode that even the homicide detectives are like a little shocked at what she's bringing forward. Like even they weren't necessarily aware that this was like a culture online on some websites. Um, but I think they kind of go with it because they do some more research and they find out who is connected to that username, to that profile on the cannibal website. And this is a man named James Brunton who lived in Peterborough. So this man is very unassuming. Like if I saw him walking on the street, he's just like a very generic, you know, kind of a little mm-hmm. plumper, like white <laughs> hair. <laughs> I don't know how to describe that, but very like almost like jolly, like a picture. Yeah. That. Like, that's kind of like what this man looks like. And this man worked at a local hockey arena so you know he was working with children very often he volunteered at a suicide hotline it it didn't seem like someone yeah that doesn't make sense yeah so not and and this is mentioned in the documentary not that like a cannibal has like a look or like a profile necessarily but they're kind of thinking like really this guy like Mm -hmm. but a team was set up anyway and they're looking into other missing men another man who kind of matches the profile of the first missing man his name is abdul Bazir Afazi, and he again had gone missing from the gay village and, you know, looked very similar to the first missing man. Then another one, Majit Kehan, who again had the same physical profile and had gone missing from the same area. So now they're thinking, okay, we have multiple missing men from Mm -hmm. the same area that all look very similar. Is this serial? Or like what's happened to them? Because they they hadn't, they're just missing. So yeah. there's not like a lot of information on any mm. of these men from what I can tell. It's just it's just missing, had been reported missing. That's yeah. pretty much it. So now they're trying to figure out if they can connect these missing men to James and the Chef Mate 50 profile. They do this by getting the help of Detective Coffee, who we meet in the episode. So he looks in further to the cannibal website, which is called Zambian Meat. So he does a deep dive into this website and he finds out that on this website there are people looking to be killed and consumed and others wanting to kill and consume. Very very strange. It's also like is that is it a a serious thing or is it a a fantasy? Yeah. Not that I could even imagine it be either one but still it has I don't know it just doesn't I think that's a big conversation with things like this because there are some people that have these fantasies and are on these websites and are just like doing their thing whether it's right or wrong and you know yeah but that would never act on it mm-hmm. and then I think there are people who are there and they're like yes I do want to murder and kill like, you or sure <laughs> yeah and are yeah. okay with it so yeah and then it's like fantasy and reality and do we let people have healthy fantasies right if they're not going to act on that like it's a it's this conversation is way bigger than us but yeah yeah it's interesting for sure so on this website like i said people that want to kill people that want to be killed the people that want to be eaten are referred to as long pig and then the, i guess there are two different kinds of cannibals one is called a chef which is i guess just a qualified cannibal i don't know where you get certified but <laughs> this is a qualified <laughs> cannibal and then the second one is called a master chef all I got from that was that this type of person can 
murder someone, prepare them, and know how to cook them. Which, sorry, I'm sorry I have to even say that. Yeah, yeah, I know it's, it's, yeah. So at this point, they wanted to get into James' house, and they want to look into his computer. They know he's on this website, but they want to know more. Can they find any evidence on his computer that he's connected to any of these missing men? They must have had a warrant. They don't really talk about this, but they're immediately, like, sitting on his house. And waiting for him to leave the house so that they can go into the house and, like, you know, mm-hmm. download things off of his computer. And I'm just thinking, like, there's, there's some stuff that we <laughs> we glided over. But obviously, there was enough there that the whatever judge, I guess, that they yeah. spoke to or whatever process it is of getting the okay to do that, the person on top of the food chain was like, yes, go for it. So, like I said, they're sitting in the house and they're waiting. The, the kicker in this is that this man has a wife and a family. So, they're sitting on the house and they're waiting for someone to leave the house and for the house to be empty. But between him and his wife, there's just kind of constantly someone there. So, they're having a really hard time <laughs> breaking into this house to download information off the computer. And imagine just by accident coming across the wife and trying to explain to her why or right. what you're doing. <laughs> Just like, I assume that the wife, no idea what was going on. Uh, we don't really get that information. And that's yeah. just an assumption. But I mean, come on. Like that is, could you, <laughs> this, <laughs> this podcast has made me never want to get married because I feel like you never actually know who no, you're marrying. Who, yeah. Yeah. I feel like you just like wake up the next day and then your husband <laughs> of 30 plus years is a cannibal. Like, imagine. That's I mean, actually scary. Do? And then yeah. what do you do? <laughs> like, if you're not eating first, yeah. <laughs> True, if you're not eating first. <laughs> oh my god, I can't believe we're having this conversation. <laughs> okay, eventually, oh actually here we get a bit more information about Detective Harris, which is kind of nice. She's a single mom, she's working her butt off, this case is really affecting her. She's like really passionate about it and wanting to find answers for these men and their families. So that was kind of a really nice sort of inside look at her life. Yeah. And it made me really sad when she um, was saying how she doesn't have, she didn't have time for her daughter and like, just like on Christmas, she had to work. And it's like, as a single mom, that must be emotionally so hard to know that what you're doing at work is so important. But at the same time, your daughter is obviously so important as well. So it must be a hard, uh, thing to to go through yeah extremely hard for sure and you can tell like how much mm-hmm. i feel like guilt she still has about it and how torn yeah. she is about the fact that she wanted to be this you know detective solving these cases but also wanting to be a good mom and i i think she from what i can tell successfully did both mm. so yeah so at this point they're sitting on his house they're waiting they're having a hard time getting in so what they decide to do next is they get the authorization to have access to his emails in real time which I was like, you can do that? Like someone can basically, like what I pictured in my head is like clone your phone, like clone your email. So they're receiving and being able to read your email addresses on their device at the same time as you are getting them. I was like, wow, (laughs) nobody's safe. (laughs) Sketchy. Yes. Like I'm super glad they were able to do that in this case, but I had no idea they could do that. So pretty cool. Obviously really great like investigative work Mm -hmm. in this case. Um, but through this, they find out that he's going to be out of town for this specific day. So during that day and night, so he's going to be gone overnight, they head to his house, the tech team sneaks in, they download information off his computer, 
and they bring it back to Detective Coffee. Through this, they find out that this man has a cabin in the woods, you know, somewhere around the Toronto area, a few hours from the downtown core, it seems like. They try to figure out where it is, you know, I think they can get some sort of like region, like they get like an idea of like sort of where it could be. So they have drones that fly through wooded areas to try and find a some sort of cabin where they can potentially find more evidence. This is when we're introduced to Detective McKenzie. He is pumped about going boots on the ground. <laughs> so the drones are not really working. The area is really wooded and he's just like, no problem, I'm going to get in my car and I'm going. So as he's doing his search with another partner, he discovers in the woods these purple ribbons that are tied up, which kind of indicate where you're going like a, they indicate a path if you've ever been like in a wooded area often there'll be like these orange ribbons tied up and that sort of tells you if you're on the right path or not um and while he's there they hear gunshots they you know recognize that it's not hunting season and that this is strange <laughs> and we never really get any information about what those gunshots were like that's like all we get about that i was like um <laughs> Can I, what can happened? you just uh, elaborate a little bit, please? Just explain that to me. <laughs> anyway, well, and then they keep kind of looking around and they find this like long beam hanger. The only thing I can kind of like describe it as is like a hangman, like you know, play the game mm. hangman. It sort of looks like that and it has like a pulley system on it. So they think, you know, this is weird. Um, again, is it hunting related? Mm-hmm. But they find it strange. And then upon further investigation, they find a fire pit and they find like shoes. Like discarded, yeah. like half burnt shoes in the forest. Which that's the thing. It's like sep- like individually, these things wouldn't necessarily raise a red flag, but together, yeah, I feel like, like it's like, oh my god, what am I walking into here? Yeah, definitely. It's it's super strange, and I got like the like goosebumps feeling. Like I was mm-hmm. like, oh my god, I'd be so scared if I was there. Oh my god, yeah, like looking <laughs> over your shoulder, like someone's yeah. gonna whack you in the head with a shovel or something (laughs) like dense woods no thank you yeah so they kind of grab up all the shoes or as much as they can i guess and they bag them and they're like we're gonna run these for dna so this is looking good at this point and they're really hopeful that some of these shoes and the dna inside them is going to match some of the missing men the shoes go through the system you know all that good stuff the dna is run and there is no match for any of the missing men so they're kind of disappointed at this point. You know, I don't know if they actually even know if, if this space belongs to this James man. I think they just, mm. you know, it was like a shot in the dark and they were hoping it would work out. But unfortunately, they can't confirm anything. And this left me wondering, what is going on in that property? Because <laughs> we don't hear anything else about it. <laughs> what kind of stuff is happening? What's the conclusion here? Yeah. yeah. Why are these shoes there? Why yeah. is it like half burnt everything? Like, it's just very strange. And I was like, I guess I got to let it go. Because I'm not going <laughs> to try it At this point, they still have access to James's computer. And they find a contract from October of 2009. It was found in a series of emails between James, who is an older man, and... a a young man who was younger than 18 years old so a kid a teenager and in this agreement or contract it's with between chef mate 50 and this boy and it says that after he turns 18 year old that he is signing away the right to give his body to chef mate 50 so that chef mate 50 can butcher and eat him imagine though like someone telling you or trying to convince you this at 17 or whatever yeah but 
my thought was like the the parents like eventually they they track down this young guy so we'll get to that but but they walk in and they're like yeah we just talked to you because your kid signed a contract and then you're looking at your kid like oh my Oh like, my god, what type so of true. therapy do I put you in? Like, how can I help you? Oh my god, I don't want kids. I don't want kids. I know, terrifying. <laughs> okay, yeah, so like I was saying, they eventually find this teenage boy, so they trace him to a home in Colorado. He explains that he had no intention to go through with the contract he signed, but I'm like, sir, you signed a contract. Like, that's so scary. I know it's not legally binding or anything, from what I, I don't think so, but like, but still, the fact that you would be like fine yeah. with signing something that says something like that, come on. Uh, yeah, Something's and obviously, weird. like, he's being, like, James or Chef Made 50 or whatever is a predator, obviously. He's a yeah. young kid, and he's being, God, I don't even know how to say this. I think we all understand where it, you're but going. But yes, he's being a predator, <laughs> and this guy is a victim, yeah. too. So, um, he says he never planned to go through with it, and when he kind of, like, alluded to that um james began blackmailing him into sending him naked pictures so then they're like gotcha we're gonna look for child (laughs) pornography on your laptop because obviously it's something that you're into so as detectives are looking into this they find folder this folder has videos on it and one of the videos is like a sneaky video hockey change room the boys didn't know the camera was there so like obviously this man is clearly a predator yeah this is grounds for an arrest but they still want to connect him to the murders so they're concerned if they arrest him for the child pornography that they're not going to be able to get him from the murders and at this point like he is their number one suspect so i think they're kind of torn at this point because they're like this guy's obviously a bad guy do we do everything we can to get him off the street right now? Or do we leave him where he is for a little bit longer while we try to get him for these murders? So they come up with a plan and an undercover police officer goes on the cannibal website and pretends to be a long pig. So basically they describe like instantly the chef made 50 profiles with James is like on him. He's like, hi, <laughs> nice New to long meet. pig, let's <laughs> yeah. go. exactly fresh meat (laughs) sorry it's true though it's true that's like i'm sure that's what's like it was like yes i don't know i'm not gonna put myself in his brain but he was clearly pumped he was on that he was like new guy i want to eat you as they're talking back and forth james and the undercover you know police officer or investigator they make a plan that uh, the undercover officer would fly to Toronto, unclear from where, and James would pick him up and then would take him to his cabin in the woods and then kill him and eat him. So they're trying to trap him. They want to see him, you know, go to the airport, attempt to pick this man up. I don't know, like, there must be legally something that is not really explained to us in the sense that, like, the intention of doing this is not enough. And they are surveilling him, and the night that he's supposed to pick this man up from the airport, they're following him and they need him to actually physically mm-hmm. get to the airport before arresting him. So that's their goal. They think they've got him. They're kind of sneakily following him while he's on his way there. But all of a sudden he turns off the highway. And I think everyone's like, oh no, like where is he Yeah, because it's like the complete opposite way of the airport. So they're like, oh shit. Exactly. He gets off at a, like some kind of mall area, goes to go to the washroom, and they're thinking it's okay. He's gonna get back on the highway. He's gonna go the right direction. He, you know, does his business and comes back, gets in his car, and again heads the complete opposite way. So they are pretty defeated at this point. They're they're sort of wondering if he had cold feet or if he knew he was being followed. 
I think he had cold feet personally. I feel mm-hmm. like this guy was not a mastermind where he could tell that these like well-trained detectives were following him. Mm-hmm. I feel like he had cold feet. I don't know what your impression was. I think I just don't even know because I can't even put myself yeah. in that. I don't know. It's just too much for me to even comprehend. But now they're left in a dilemma because they haven't really, you know, caught him for anything related to the murder, but they think like we can't leave this predator on the street now. Yeah. We're kind of at the point where we need to arrest him. So that's what they do. And they arrest him for the child pornography. So they interview him and they mention that they have, you know, these videos on his computer and they mention that they know all about the cannibal website. And he kind of admits that he had admitted on the website that he killed someone, but then again, it was just some sort of fantasy like we discussed. They search his home, into which I was wondering, where is his wife? Because how <laughs> disturbing is this? But I'm sure she finds out about all of this. As, mm-hmm. and, and these are older people. Like, he's in his, I think, late, late 60s, if not early 70s. I didn't exactly write it down. But you lived your whole life with this person. <laughs> then you find out he's at least fantasizing about killing someone. And, and maybe eating. he has. And yeah, yeah. You don't know. We'll find out that this is not our guy <laughs> and that we have no proof that he's ever killed or cannibalized anyone. But you're looking at your husband and you're like, so this is what you're into. And like, now I'm scared. I'm scared to live with <laughs> like, you. But I'm also old now. So what do I do? Do I divorce you? Like, I've lived my whole life with you. And what if they have had a happy marriage? It's also like when you're getting intimate in bed, it's like, are you fantasizing about killing me and eating me right now? Does that turn you on? I think you have to divorce. I think there's no. Yeah, I don't think there's any coming back from that. Well, also, especially since there's the whole child pornography too. True. That's that's also something like horribly disgusting that I think would be really hard to get over like obviously the answer is like i don't think you can be with them but i think you're, you're like there must be some <laughs> but well, i don't, I don't know mean. maybe she I, I don't know we don't know if they i don't know some people stand by horrible people so yeah. you really absolutely. don't know absolutely okay anyways they can't connect this guy to the murders like i said <laughs> but okay this rage all he gets is time serve which was probably not that long probably no, I don't like, think a couple months not even like Plus three years probation. That's it. Mm. Whether he went through with it or not, being mm. on this website, I know is not like necessarily a crime. He was he left his house and went beginning into the direction of mm. the airport. He was yeah. heading towards the airport and then yeah. changed his mind. So one red flag, obviously, <laughs> and then two like all these videos on his like all these kids that were, and then this his name is public yet publicly out there. Like if you worked with this guy, if you you know if he was your hockey coach or the assistant or the trainer or whatever like you know that he's been creeping on you like there are victims yeah. in this case Th- mm-hmm. these kids are victims 100 yeah. percent. and i just think that that's bs yeah i agree absolutely you know and detective harris is obviously like very upset that this didn't work out she dedicated so much of her time and energy to mm-hmm. try and solve this case and we find out that she retires from the police force sort of after this. The first episode- feels so defeating. Oh my God. I know. And I was, yeah, I was like, I don't know if I'm like happy for her because, you know, she put in her work. She's been a cop since she was 18, I think it said at the beginning of this episode. She has done, you know, her job and now is like, I've had enough. I need to walk away. Or if this case sort of like burnt her out to the point where she's like, I can't do this anymore. Like, ugh. Yeah, yeah, I feel for her for sure. She probably felt like she was not going to have the final answer. Um, and since that one came so close, it was probably just like, yeah, I, I can't emotionally 
physically do this anymore yeah Yeah. and like probably she felt like she needed to be maybe a bit more with her daughter Mm -hmm. i don't i don't know but yeah you feel really sorry for her in this yeah at this point in the documentary for sure so the first episode ends with detective harrison getting a call from her old boss telling her quote unquote it's happened again this is basically alluding to there's been more men who have gone missing from the gay village in toronto so we start our new episode with you know finding out again that more people have gone missing i wanted to stop here and sort of mention all the names of the men that you know ended up being this um murderers victims because we've only heard a couple so far and i think it's just like for the sake Mm -hmm. of the documentary they do mention them at the end end of the second episode um but i want to mention the first four and then we're going to get into the last ones after so the first four the first man's name was bazir faizi then there was majid who went by hamid kehan and then who we've already mentioned skanda navaratnam and finally sarush mahmoudi so that's kind of where we are up to date in our episodes. And then we start our second episode by finding out that a man by the name of Andrew Kinsman and another man called Salim Asan have gone missing. We meet Detective Dickinson, who is now overseeing the case of these missing men. He had been with the homicide unit for five years, but this was the first time he was overseeing his first you know, sort of in charge of his first investigation. He was focusing on Salim and Andrew because I think they were the most recent men that had gone missing. And they looked into Andrew's apartment. Salim was described as kind of being more transient, like living on the street or in shelters. So he didn't have, you know, as much of a, a central place where detectives could look into to try and find more evidence, more clues to kind of look into his disappearance. So they kind of tackle Andrew and they look at Andrew's apartment. So they go in, um, you know, they say that the place doesn't look like he planned on going anywhere. It's sort of, you know, set up like an everyday apartment. There are no bags packed, you know, nothing is, there's no red flags right away. His calendar was flipped on the month of June and he went missing on the 26th. And on the day that he went missing, it was written on his calendar, 3 p.m. Bruce. And this is a clue for investigators right away. So keep this in mind, write on your calendars what you're doing. (laughs) Yes. And who you're meeting, especially if you're like unsure about the person you're meeting. Yes. Or just share your location and tell your friends, tell Mm -hmm. your family, tell everyone, tell everyone. So investigators are like, okay, this is the day he goes missing and he had an appointment or had a meeting or whatever with someone named Bruce. So they want to know who is Bruce. They get some surveillance video from around his apartment building and they look at the day of, the day of the 26th, and they can't really find much. The only thing that they can see like barely is a red dodge van across the street so this this van isn't parked it's kind of idling i guess like there's someone in it and at some point they see a man leave the apartment building a tall man and andrew was like over six feet so a man that they assume is andrew because andrew is towering over this van get into the red dodge van and the red van leaves and goes eastbound they're wondering who who's the driver of this van like if if this is the last time that andrew might have been seen alive we need to figure out who was driving this red van i love this type of detective work that's coming up next it's my favorite it's just like Uh this piece and this piece and this piece and they put it all together it's like gotcha (laughs) good puzzle yes exactly 
So they take the image of the Dodge van to a dealership. A dealership confirms that it's a 2004 24th anniversary edition Dodge Caravan. If you're going to murder, you probably shouldn't get a special edition car. Like the Honda Civic, uh, like, you know. Literally, my next line. My next line. Oh, <laughs> obviously. I didn't even see that. <laughs> obviously, keep being stupid. Like, don't take yeah. this advice, murderers. But... So Matt, my fiance, was watching this with me this morning, and um, we were just laughing because we were like, if you're in Ontario, you drive a Honda Civic, but if you're in Alberta, you drive like a 2008 truck, right. and then you're just like way blended in. You're not driving like a special edition, easily recognizable yeah. caravan. We obviously didn't think that it would make much of a difference, but it ended up making a difference. They look into the backgrounds of all of the people that own this van. There are five Bruces that they're able to find and they run background checks on all of these Bruces. Four out of five are clean, you know, nothing's weird. They're, you know, they're like, you have no history, no background of anything violent. But they come across a man by the name of Bruce MacArthur. He had recently been pardoned for a conviction that he got in 2003 where he assaulted a man with a pipe. And in 2016, he had been in a violent encounter with a man in his Dodge Caravan. So, and let's just say that in 2016, he was also a mall Santa. Was he? Yes. Did I miss that? Or was that? Oh, like- I, I Googled okay. his name just to see if there was like more like interesting no. facts. He was a mall Santa in 2016. So they never did a background check on him. Because like when you're supposed to, because like, he was convicted like like you said in 2003 we're going terrified <laughs> yeah and it's like when you're working with vulnerable like a vulnerable population like the yeah elderly or or kids or anything Children like that or, yeah. you have to yeah and they didn't uh, background check him oh my god like there's pictures of him as santa on the internet could you imagine, like, you know, when you're yeah. Christmas time and your parents take out those like frames with those pictures of yes. you and your siblings and, and you take it out and you're like, that's freaking Bruce MacArthur. That would be, oh my God. If any of our listeners have a picture <laughs> with Bruce MacArthur Santa, yeah. send it over. We want to see yeah. that. As Bruce MacArthur's name is being thrown around during the investigation, Detective McKenzie has a realization. He interviewed Bruce in 2013. He had admitted that he knew the first few men that had gone missing, but was trying to be helpful with the investigation. Detective McKenzie said that he had no reason to be suspicious of him at the time, and that, you know, he got, like, kind of a good vibe from him. At the end of the episode, there's, like, on-screen text, and some of it says that although there was good investigative work in this case, that they could have done more to run background checks. So I'm assuming they're referring to this moment here. Yeah. I don't think that they actually looked into him. They did into him. Because he wasn't, but to be fair, I don't think at this point, he's not a suspect, like back in 2013, he's not a suspect. Right. He's like a friend trying to help, but still you would think that like, maybe that would have been a good, mm-hmm. good idea. It could have saved some lives for sure. We get a lot of information right now that the gay village is on edge, which absolutely. I don't blame you know, them, yeah. yeah. They're feeling targeted. They're feeling like probably like investigators are not doing enough to, you know, protect them. Mm-hmm. And they are a more vulnerable population. So yeah, it's just, you, you can really feel that they're all on edge, that this is really scary for them. And that a place that is supposed to be safe and welcoming yeah. is now sort of being flipped upside down. Right, like your go-to sense of community, sense of belonging is being yeah 
taken from you yeah exactly which is it's it is really hard to hear because i think that a lot of people that identify with the lgbtq plus community just look for that so much Mm -hmm. obviously because that's kind of their lifeline and for that Mm -hmm. to be taken from them when so much is taken from them Mm -hmm. is really frustrating to hear so like i said detective harris is retired at this point but she's keeping up to date with the case as much as she can you know in the news and stuff she you know she can't keep her hands off yeah if you see a pop-up on the news i'm sure you cannot help yourself but to get involved she really wants to know what's what's going on and wants to be mm. part of it. She even says at some point that she tried to go back for the investigation, but that her, that her current employer at the time wouldn't let her. And I'm like, oh, that must be so hard. Yeah. But she obviously had a lot of faith in the people that took over the case and she says so. Um, and she figured that they would be able to maybe solve this case. So as they're looking into this Bruce MacArthur, they find out that he's a landscaper that he had been separated from his wife and had children and grandchildren. They look for any video surveillance that had Andrew and Bruce together. To do this, they look at video footage from or near Bruce's apartment. They figure out where his parking spot is and they see him, you know, often using his red caravan. But on August 17th, he leaves and doesn't come back. He only returns the next day. And when he returns, he has a new van. So investigators are like, wait a minute. What'd you do? Yeah. And I think like, it's interesting because I think he was trying to get rid of his van for evidence, obviously, but that ends up being sort of his downfall. And I wonder if he had kept it, how much of a harder time investigators would have had getting their hands on it. Yeah, I didn't think of that. So right now we're in the episodes, we're meeting Detective Platt and he is like on this van. He's joining the investigation and he's like, we need to find this van. They go looking at scrapyards or wrecking yards to see if they can locate it. They go to a few with no luck, but finally they actually find his van, which is to me was just like mind blowing. (laughs) I was like, yes. (laughs) They immediately seal it up for evidence and they're like, we're going to get something from this. Yeah. Investigators do their thing, you know, all that CSI stuff is happening. <laughs> and they find a small bit of Andrew's blood in the van. But it's not enough to, you know, think that something nefarious could have happened. Like Andrew had voluntarily got into the van on the other surveillance footage. So he, they could have been just friends and he could have cut himself or what. Like it, it wasn't enough. It wasn't smoking gun unfortunately but it helps them get a warrant to get into his apartment so to get into bruce's apartment they also put a gps tracking device on his vehicle on his new van so that you know the team is like basically waiting outside his apartment building as soon as they see that his car is on the move away they all go 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 and they go into his apartment and they try to get the most information off of his laptop as they can one of the detectives is sitting watching the gps the other one is with the team going into the apartment kind of tearing it apart but they can't move things too much because they don't yeah. want bruce to know that like they're on to him that must have been <gasps> such a stressful oh my god full yeah. of anxiety moment where your heart is literally about to explode because like, like my heart really pumps like that when i'm in the, when i'm watching like movies or shows mm. that i like see it happening but you could fast forward and be like, okay, this happens now. I know yeah. what's going to happen. Like in real life, you have no freaking idea what's about to go down. It was truly like it sounded like a movie moment. Yes. It's what it felt like. So as Bruce is out, they download as much information off his laptop as they can. And Detective Platt is in his apartment and he finds some sort of like what he describes as a murder kit. Ropes, a metal bar, things like that, that he takes a picture of and swabs for DNA. 
And then sooner rather than later, they get the message from the detective following his car in the GPS saying, get out of there. He's coming back. So they're scrambling, they're scrambling, and apparently minutes before he arrives at the apartment building, they're out of there. So now they take all the information they got from his laptop. From what I understood, it wasn't like all of the information because it would have taken hours to download, but the information that they got, they start going through it. This seems like this takes hours, this takes days Mm -hmm. even, before they find anything. But eventually, they find images of dead men. One of the men is Salim. They said that they can obviously tell that he's passed away at this point and that he's been brutally murdered. These pictures are taken in the bedroom of Bruce MacArthur where they just were. So it's pretty... This is their smoking gun, basically. They're like, we can place at least one Mm-hmm. of these missing men in his bedroom in his apartment and clearly you know had been murdered as they look into it further they find more pictures of murdered men and some of the men they had no idea were actually missing so this is yeah. like a huge awakening to the team it seems like basically at the same time as this is happening but i'm sure that's just for the the movie documentary moments but at the same time they're figuring this out the team surveilling bruce calls detectives and says he just picked up another man. Mm-hmm. So detectives are on the move. They're basically running, you know, getting we in the save car. His life, yeah. Yeah, they're like, this is we have we don't have a choice. We have to arrest him now mm-hmm. because he could do you know, he could be doing something yeah. to this man that he's picked up. And this visual is so funny because it, it's not funny, but the visual is like very entertaining because they get to the apartment. I think it, it I think it was Bruce MacArthur's apartment, but they get to the apartment. And apparently, like, half the elevators aren't working, and they can only get into one, and I I must have been too high up to take the stairs. So they're squishing themselves into this, trying to head up there to, like, interrupt whatever is going on, and everyone's getting off at every floor. It's like, beep, beep beep like like slow just the slowest <laughs> process like slowest process ever and i'm sure that their hearts are racing they're like anticipating it they're hoping that nothing happens during the time that they're in yeah. this elevator and thankfully when they finally get to the floor they open the door arrest bruce and find the other man handcuffed to the bed and blindfolded he was like 100 percent gonna be mm-hmm. his next victim and i wonder if he knew it at that point yeah like if it was okay. presented sort yeah. of sort of like bdsm style and he was into it and yeah. then if he switches usually or if it was instantly like this is not what i signed mm-hmm. up for yeah no exactly i wonder they find some evidence in his truck they you know find the metal bar and stuff and it was very obvious that this had been kind of a murder weapon and detective Platt has this moment where he's like i realized that i was holding that metal bar swabbing it for dna and that was one of his murder weapons and he you know he's kind of describes it as very eerie yeah when they interview bruce they want to know where are the bodies and bruce gives them nothing Thankfully, they figure out that he has this landscaping property, and they bring in the dogs. <laughs> I think this is the worst part. So the little puppers are doing their thing, they're sniffing around, and unfortunately, slash, like, fortunately, because this family's getting yeah. answers, the dogs hit on this big giant planter, and there is where detectives find body parts. They describe it as kind of layers and layers of soil and body parts, and at first they're only able to identify Andrew. Eventually they identify all the men on his computer 
and on January 29th, 2019, Bruce MacArthur pleads guilty to eight counts of first-degree murder and is sentenced to life in prison. All the detectives are super emotional about being able to close this case, and like so... It's been a long time coming. Yeah. Yes. Extremely relieved and happy they caught their guy. I am going to mention a couple of the men that we don't hear about uh, by name other than on the on-screen text. Or maybe I'll just go, I'll go through the whole list again and give you guys a bit of an idea of who these men were. So the first man was Bahir Fahizi. He was an Afghan immigrant and he was described as living kind of a double life so i'm sure that he was i guess closeted and wasn't fully out so had spent some time in the gay village then there was majid who went by hamid kehan he was an afghan immigrant and was also described as living a double life there was skanda nevaratnam who kind of you know set us off and started this episode for us he was a sri lankan tamil refugee with no family in canada then we have sarush mahmoodi he was a refugee from Iran. And then we have, as previously mentioned, Andrew Kinsman. And it's sort of unclear if he might have worked with or for Bruce MacArthur, but there was some kind of, of tie there to him. Then we have Salim Asan, and he was a Turkish citizen with a history of drug use. And then Dean Lisowick, who was a homeless and former drug user and sex worker. And I think these are some of the men that were never actually reported missing. And finally... Karushna Kanagaratnam, and he was a Sri Lankan Tamil asylum seeker under a deportation order. So these are obviously, you know, a lot of these men are, I would say, like at higher risk of mm-hmm. violence. They are immigrants or refugees who are living these lives that are sometimes described as double lives. So less people know where they are, what they're doing, um, who they're with. And also, you know, the, the people who are described as quote unquote drug users who are not even reported missing by anyone is it's just he, this this man was a nasty, disgusting predator. Mm-hmm. And yeah, mm-hmm. we're glad that he was caught for sure. No more kids sitting on his lap at Christmas. Oh my God. <laughs> that is wild. That is wild. <laughs> scary. Yeah, very scary. I wonder, and again, like separated from his wife, had children, had grandchildren, like, yeah. Yeah. No, there's a lot going on there. When I first heard like bits and pieces of this case, I thought that the body parts and stuff like that were hidden in properties that he was landscaping for. I thought that's what it was. Yeah. So I don't know. This document, like based on our information Mm -hmm. on the episode we're watching. So in this documentary, they do make it seem like it was on his landscaping property and like his garage and stuff like that. But yeah, I really thought that it was more of the properties he's caring for, but maybe not. Maybe that was just one of those sort of news. Yeah, I thought that's why it was kind of hard to find where the bodies were because they were scattered around different properties that he worked with. It's like, imagine just cops showing up at your house being like, I need to tear up your front lawn and see if someone buried a body there. I think some of them were found in properties. Like here's a, like a CTV News Toronto article and the title is nothing is the same. It says owner of Lee side property where Bruce MacArthur's victims were found. I'm feeling like they weren't all found where this documentary kind of makes it seems they were, mm-hmm. but Anyway, it was really interesting. If you guys haven't watched it, recommend it. It's on Netflix. So good, yeah. Yeah, definitely take a look at it. Yeah, and thank you guys for joining us. Um, We're super happy to bring you another episode. We hope that you enjoyed it. And we'll see you next time.